Hello and welcome to the Imagineer Podcast, your unofficial guide to all things Disney. I'm your host, Matthew Krull, and you're listening to episode 119 of the Imagineer Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing a fascinating topic, which is the Imagineering of Disney Springs. I know when we think about Imagineering, we often gravitate towards and think of those e-ticket attractions, those big thrill rides and game changers in the theme park landscape, perhaps even some of the best shows at the Disney parks. We don't often think about places, and especially shopping, but it's incredible the amount of detail and the theming that goes into a shopping district at Disney and what it took to transform downtown Disney into Disney Springs. Of course, to fully discuss this topic, I had to bring a guest onto the show who knows a thing or two about Disney Springs. So I invited back veteran Walt Disney Imagineer Theron Skies, who was the lead Imagineer on Disney Springs. It is incredible what I learned from chatting with him, the amount of detail that went into Disney Springs, the complexity that it took to bring this project to life, and the sheer imagineering that went into the shopping district is extraordinary. It's incredible that so much time and attention went into this project, and I cannot wait for you to hear some of this this incredible imagineering that went into this really incredible place at Walt Disney World. I know that I came out of the conversation having an even greater appreciation for Disney Springs, and I anticipate you will as well. So in this episode, I get the chance to chat with Theron about the imagineering of Disney Springs and some of the details that will want you to go back and explore this shopping district at Walt Disney World. Before we get started, I do want to give a special thank Thanks to our sponsor, WDW Magazine. You can learn more and subscribe to their print or digital editions by clicking on the link in the show notes of this episode or heading to ImagineerPodcast.com. At the end of the episode, I'll come back and tell you a little bit more about how you can connect with the Imagineer Podcast on all your favorite social media channels and how you can help to inspire and create the future of this show. So grab some headphones, pull up your favorite armchair, and enjoy this episode of the Imagineer Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our Instagram Live discussion about Disney Springs. This is going to be what I think is going to be a really fun discussion. We've done this series before, chatting with an Imagineer about Disney Springs, or about, I should say, about a wide range of different topics. In today's episode, we are going to be talking specifically about Disney Springs with the lead Imagineer, Theron Skies, who worked on Disney Springs. He and I have chatted before about this project in some detail. There are so many stories, and this is what has amazed me about talking about a subject like Disney Springs, is you wouldn't think for a shopping district there would be so much imagineering that goes into it. Of course, us Disney fans know what goes into any project at Disney, but I was still amazed and continue to be amazed by Theron's stories about Disney Springs because there's so much that went into it and we're going to chat with him. I think you're going to have a newfound appreciation after this discussion about Disney Springs. I know I already have and the last time I visited I was so impressed and looking for all these details and hidden easter eggs and storytelling and it's incredible what Disney does to Imagineer even, again, a shopping district like Disney Springs. So without further ado, let me go ahead and invite Theron into the room and we'll kick off this really amazing discussion. I'll give Theron, of course, the opportunity once again to introduce himself and to share a little bit more about what he does and uh, how he worked with Disney. So Theron, welcome back to the show. Hey, so great to be back, Matt. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks so much for coming on to the show again. This is our third Instagram Live. We've done a general Q&A. We did an episode about Tower of Terror, and now we're doing a discussion about Disney Springs. And this one, I, I have to say, Tower of Terror set the bar very high, but I have, I think, even more excitement for this topic because I have to admit, as a Disney fan I and as an Imagineering geek, I, I know a lot about Tower of Terror. I still learned a ton from you. I'm not going to lie. There were so many stories I didn't know. But I don't know that much about Disney Springs, except for going there and understanding the the layout and the, the shops and some of the general storytelling. But let's start things off by, first of all, discussing what your role was on the Disney Springs project. That's probably the best place to start. Sure. Uh, thanks again for having me. I'm really excited to talk about these uh, topics. And hopefully all of your audiences submitted some great questions because that's the they most have. fun of all. They have. So my role uh, was as executive creative director for the project. And basically that just means the overall creative lead uh, for the project. Um, and it, it was quite a big challenge uh, creatively. And we can get into this more uh, because it's it wasn't as simple as not that an attraction is simple, but it, it wasn't as straightforward. We had to, in a sense, really create a whole new creative development pathway to even get started. So um, that in itself was a really uh, awesome place to be scary, but but really awesome because it was brand new. We hadn't really done it on this scale for the company before. That makes sense. Um, and it provides you with a great perspective and overview for this project. There were, I have to say, a lot of great questions submitted, so we're going to get to a lot of them. For any of you watching on Instagram Live, though, who are, who are here watching with us live, definitely submit your questions in the comments. You can add them to the question sticker. So if you didn't get the chance to submit it previously, please feel free to do so. We're reading the comments directly. We're going to respond to everything that we possibly can. But let me go into the question sticker because, like I said, there was there was a lot that was here that I thought was really worth discussing. And I want to start with the inspiration. What was the inspiration behind the refurb? Because everybody knows that it used to be downtown Disney and it was a really popular place to go. We had Pleasure Island, we had the West Side, we had the Marketplace, and now it's totally different. So what was the inspiration or the, the motivation to change it to Disney Springs? Sure. Well, maybe I should go just a little bit into the Wayback Machine just to set the context. Yes, uh, because let's some, do it. Some, you know, there's so many new people that have moved to Orlando or actually new visitors that maybe never went to um, Downtown Disney before. So just contextually, um, Downtown Disney consisted of three districts, you could call. You mentioned Pleasure Island. Um, the other one was West Side, but it all started with the Disney Village in the 1970s. Um, then in the 80s, as you said, it went to Pleasure Island. 90s, it went to the West Side. Now, one thing to really keep in mind is, unlike a theme park, these three districts were really separate. They were completely uh, separate. The infrastructure, the cabling, the drainage, you know, all of that, as well as story-wise, they were three separate um, experiences. In fact, to get from the Disney Village to to get over to the West Side, you if you remember, you had to walk it like in the parking lot and the sidewalk <laughs> yeah. around. Uh, if you didn't want to pay to walk through Pleasure Island because it was a ticketed um, venue, you had to kind of walk around it. So with that as context, that was our first kind of solution uh, or thing that we had to solve is that that's not what Disney fans are really used to, right? Disney fans uh, and people who, who visit, uh, even for the first time, what they discover is that Disney's great at creating a place. And that place has a feeling, it has a belonging, it has a time period, you know, characters that live there, it has a history. And you can you can feel that when you walk into it. And, and Downtown Disney just didn't it was it was very separate uh, the other thing that was a big business driver uh for it at the time was that orlando really built up uh in the time since um the disney village was, certainly was done in the 70s uh, that was built actually because there was really no shopping out out at walt disney world property at all and then slowly kind of gained over time well orlando got sophisticated they got nightclubs they had cool venues to go to you had the Florida Mall, you had the Millennial Mall, uh, which is very high end. And 
frankly, the Disney company, Walt Disney World, was seeing big tour buses that would show up on property. Guests who were staying at Walt Disney World would load into these buses, drive off property to go shopping and come back. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it didn't take a, an MBA to figure out that, you know, you had to do something different. So that's the context for why uh, we did that. And it was just happened to be at a point in time when the Disney company had really great leadership that could see that need and really invested the right amount of money to do it right. And it makes sense. I remember downtown Disney well, and it did. It was very piecemeal. There was not a collective story to tie Disney Springs together. So, uh, and and you're right. I remember we typically, as as a very Disney family, if we were going to go shopping when we were at Walt Disney World, we were not leaving Walt Disney World property. We went to downtown Disney to go shopping. But as a as a local, I rarely went shopping at Downtown Disney. I went to the to the Mall at Millennia, like you mentioned, or maybe the Orlando Mall. And then when the Disney Springs refurb happened, all of a sudden it became even as a local made more sense to now go to Disney Springs because not only were you getting the shopping, but you're also now in this place that feels Disney, which we're gonna. I know. I know that's one of the things we're we're gonna talk about as well. So I, I thought that was um, interesting. We should. Uh, th- this is. This comes with a frowny face, all, which people can't see who are listening to the podcast. But I, I think it's worth mentioning. Why? Why change the name? Because I think this is something that is always a very controversial decision, right? Disney MGM Studios became Disney's Hollywood Studios, and there are shirts that say it's always M- it's always going to be MGM to me. But um, you know, it's. At what point do you make the decision to not only change the story, but also change the name that goes with the story? That's a fantastic question, actually. And I think Disney Springs has the uh, probably the best reason for doing it. And that is, if you were to look across Walt Disney World property, there were times that you'd see signs for Pleasure Island, or you'd see signs that said West Side, or signs that said Disney Village. And then there were signs that said Downtown Disney. And I think over time, it, it got really confusing for guests. Like, where where are we going? It's Downtown Disney, and that's just Pleasure Island, right? No, no, no. Pleasure Island is... It, it became so convoluted, unfortunately, that that was another real justification for creating a single place with a single name and an identity and story and feeling that was authentic that was connected, you know, and 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 so that in this case, the name really did make sense because it was talking about, you know, this town, and uh, we can talk about it. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I mean, it, the name itself was quite literally taken after the to- the town itself. So we were creating a real place that was a real town uh, before, and um, so I, I think. That was the only way to go is to name it one thing. Well, that did prompt a question that you you really teed me up because, look, I got this right here. What is the story behind Disney Springs? It was one of the topics I wanted to make sure to mention because not a lot of people know. I I think you can there and like any Imagineering project, you can see something and it can just click and make sense. And you almost don't need to know the formal story to get it. But it always is helpful or insightful. And certainly as a fan, it brings me a lot of excitement to be able to share, well, here are why the details are like this, and here's the story. So what, what is the story behind Disney Springs? This, this, I think, to me is a great uh, question, and I really enjoy answering this because, and I, I lecture and teach on this a lot, that, that story, um, of course, is narrative, right? And, and if, you, if you ask your, uh, anyone who's joining the, the live event right now what their favorite book or movie is, they could tell you and they could really tell you about the story because it made an emotional connection with them and they remembered it. The characters resonated, the theme, you know, uh, triumph over evil or whatever, you know, hero's journey, all of those things resonate. So to, to use that power of story narrative in a dimensional physical place is the best thing to do, right? That's the best because unlike movies, books, um, and games, uh, when a, a themed environment is a physical place that you walk into. So it, you, you have to have a narrative. However, there's one difference, uh, and I think that that this is true with Imagineering and certainly true in the themed entertainment industry, and that is that story actually drives business. 
And in this case of Disney Springs, it really is the case. So if you go back to what I just said contextually about how diverse and how kind of broken up, dispersed, if you will, the story was. Even the names were confusing. Um, you'd, had, you'd have signs. I mean, think about this. If you put a sign in Crossroads um, where, you know, the Hotel Plaza Boulevard is, right. what do you say? Downtown Disney? Do you say West Side? Where, you know, do you say go to Planet Hollywood at uh, West Side at Downtown Disney, right? It could get very, very confusing. So, it also was a huge challenge from an Imagineering design perspective. How do we take these three very diverse districts? There, we can't bulldoze everything. We have to keep these <laughs> right. things open. And some of this stuff is is old, right? Even the retail standards of storefronts and stuff in um, uh, the 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 Disney Village side that was built in the seventies. Those standards are completely. We don't do that anymore, right? If, if you're in any kind of modern retail, you have 40-foot storefronts, all this stuff. So how do we make all this together? Plus, how do we add over a million square feet with brand new buildings, brand new retailers? How does it feel right? So it took months to really figure out the story. And in this case, the story is the thing that bind to, you know, bound together the brand the audience, and the business objectives. That's really what I teach. Those three elements, story encapsulates that, sets a vision for what the project will do, and then everybody aligns to that. And then this case is the best case study because this is really what we did here. And when we, when we hit on the fact that this was a town, then it gave us the, the excuse, if you will, to use the older buildings and to uh, design along a time period as if the town grew naturally. And uh, it just all fit together perfectly. So that makes sense. So the town name is actually then Disney Springs. Is that, that that's what I'm kind of piecing together here? Um, yes. Well, the original town was called The Springs. That was okay. just a simple name that we gave it. Oh, that gave makes it. more sense. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we had a whole background as to how it got started and everything. And I'll just give you one little piece of the story here that I think is really cool. Because yeah. we had a lot of uh, fiction in our background story. But the one fact in the background story is that Walt's parents were actually married uh, just outside of Orlando in a little town called Kismet. In fact, it doesn't even exist anymore. So we kind of dreamed that around the dinner table... Walt's parents talked about their visit to Florida, honeymooning, you know, in Florida and how beautiful and natural it was. So when it came time for Walt to purchase property for his East Coast, you know, project, the Florida project, of course, he went back and looked at Central Florida based on all of the discussions that they had around the dinner table. And when he purchased all that land, the Springs as a little town was a part of that purchase. And then so building it out with the parking garages and everything modern that's there was just a part of the Disney development. But we still always honored where it started with the Springs, right? That, that was kind of our storyline in a nutshell. That's so cool. I love that it involves waltz. It kind of ties together reality and fiction and it's a it's a it's a work of um it's almost like fan fiction. It's taking it's taking an existing an existing property which in this case is actually reality um and changing things slightly and then creating a story around it. So I think that's actually very cool. And I didn't know about that Walt connection. So that gives me even now a greater appreciation for for Disney Springs as a whole. Um, yeah, all of us as fans get our hearts start glowing when it when it ties back to especially <laughs> Walt and his family and and that bit of um, a, that bit of truth is is really cool. Um, in fact, when we pitched the idea to Diane Disney before she passed away, actually it was I think about two or three months before she passed away, I had the incredible opportunity to present to her at the Disney Family Museum in line with some other stuff that we were presenting to her and. Uh, and it was like career highlight where she said, wow, my dad would just love this. And I was just like, all right, oh, wow, die now. You know, this was this was incredible. <laughs> that that would be an incredible compliment to get from a member of the Disney family, Disney, uh, Walt's own daughter. I mean, that that's got to be incredible right there. Um, we're going to talk about project development and in particular this project because there are so many pieces that go into a place like this it's almost the scale of a theme park what you know i think this is a good question because it's asking about decision makers and especially when it comes to something massive like this how many decision makers are involved for 
a vision and I guess a, a sort of extension of this is the the execution or another way to think about it is how is a project like this structured in terms of the decision makers? Sure. Well, um, I think if anybody that's listening uh, either has experience with it or not, one thing that's probably pretty obvious is a legacy brand company like Disney or Universal or even Merlin to, uh, you know, entertainment to a large degree. You know, those companies invest hundreds of millions or sometimes billions of dollars and they don't even see a return on that investment for sometimes three or even five years before they make a dime back on it. There's just not a lot of companies in the world that can do that. Um, so I only say that not to you know ring the bell about how much money, but to say that when you have that much money on the line, you end up with a lot of help on your projects, right? <laughs> you end up with the, a lot of people who really uh, have a vested interest. They are responsible for that money, so you have a lot of corporate oversight, and you have a lot of um, project oversight. So, from an Imagineering perspective, you know controls and finance and risk mitigation, and and the creative has got to be you know absolutely innovative. So you have a lot of a, a lot on a regular project on a Tower of Terror on a Pandora. You know, I would call that a regular project. That's something we do quite a lot of, even with the innovations. It's an attraction. It's a land. That's something we're very familiar with. On something like a Disney Springs, where there were quite a few even senior players in the company that really didn't know what it was. Is it a mall? Is it a shopping center? Is it a theme park? You know, we're just not quite sure, even until we up to the point, you know, scary as that may sound, that we delivered. There was quite a few people in the organization that didn't really understand we were where we were going and then when when we when we did deliver it they were like oh wow that's amazing so think about that with the disney company we had all that support um but we also had over a hundred tenants and those tenants invested close to 300 million dollars total you know maybe more um and with all of their spaces the restaurants built all their spaces the, all of the retailers and everything came in so each one of them had their own ceo their own project manager their own finance group their own architects they had their own builders so it was it was not like a theme park or a hotel project where Disney was running the job, Imagineering was on site running the job, you had a contractor, you had an architect, you had a ride design firm, and some other specialists, and that was kind of it, you kind of control your own destiny. This project was not that at all. You had over a hundred of, of those scenarios, right, and, and they were all going at different paces and different times, and people were always changing, um, so it was enormously complex. Uh, project with so many different wheels spinning and we had the Disney Walt Disney World uh, government group which is called Reedy Creek we had of course they were involved in doing all the building permits and roadway ex inspections and garages and it was unbelievable so we had a government entity that sat in on on literally every meeting so yeah uber complex <laughs> <laughs> to say the least I I'm glad you brought up the idea of the tenants because that is a rare part of a project at Disney to have in most cases the decision makers are mostly those in, within the Walt Disney company it's private property it's it's a you know it's, unless there's a licensing part of it it's really all about the the Disney experience but here you have to get all of these tenants to agree to the plan and i can only imagine that a I'm trying to think of who's there if you have a like coach for instance um they might have a different opinion than a, the Coca-Cola store that's there. And those are, you know, two different people that had to, two different companies that had to agree. So how do you get a hundred different restaurants, brands, shops? How do you get everybody to agree on and sign off on the story? Because that almost seems like literally impossible. I can sometimes even at, you know, in my day job, get like 10 people to agree to something, but you have a hundred separate organizations. How do you do that? <laughs> It was it was a five ring circus. It really was. It was constantly moving. One of the other um, big differences between you know kind of the the uh, more regular type of projects that uh, an Imagineering or that a Disney would do, even even as super complex as a whole theme park is, and that's really complex. You're dealing with a a foreign government like a, like a Shanghai or Paris or Hong Kong, for example, you know, there's and, and foreign companies. I mean, there's a lot of challenges there. 
But if you bring that domestic and you just go to Walt Disney World and you're talking about an attraction or even a land, it's pretty much the Disney company dictating what we're going to build and how that's going to work out. In the case of Pandora, you have, you know, Jim Cameron and Lightship Entertainment, and, and that's a big deal. you got to work together. But it's nothing like a hundred different brands um, and trying to keep all of those... Um, everybody happy right so one of the bigger challenges and which was very different from any other project that we'd done is we had to have a lot of design work done up front um, in fact the entire model room we'd build this big uh, presentation center with I don't know maybe some of your your um, audience members have seen this with the really cool magic model changing I think there's a video on YouTube that shows it and with the announcement of Disney Springs. But yeah, it's, I haven't seen it in person, but even on video, it looked amazing. It was really cool. That was, that was uh, you know, my idea uh, to, to bring together uh, Imagineers. It was the one Brilliant. of the first times we ever pulled that off. Um, and we had a group of, of really, really cool Imagineers that were painting with light. So they were painting on the, on the physical model with light, even down to one pixel. So the street lamps... They did one pixel of light on each street lamp. Very, very cool stuff. Hadn't really been done before. And that was part of selling the big story uh, idea to all the tenants. So before we even really started in earnest on full-scale design, we had to advance a lot of our concept thinking, a lot of our early feasibility and early um, concept development just to get the, the program. How many square feet? How many different buildings? How would we divide up retail? How would we divide up um, uh, dining and entertainment zones? And that was our best guess in the beginning. And Matt, one thing that was a huge challenge was that constantly changed all the way through until maybe a year before opening. Actually, some restaurants and spaces were still uh, being built and developed even after opening, um, and we would change that. So we would start with, you know, Zara, I remember, um, started off, we were only, I think, 10,000 square feet, and they said, we have to have 25,000 square feet. So we were just, I mean, I even took a, um, a fire escape staircase and took it out of the building and moved it outside. You can see that when you walk into the big brick um, uh, a building, you can see staircase on the outside. And that was our Meisner uh, stairs that we did in honor of uh, Addison Meisner Architects. But um, anyway, so that was a big challenge because with a, with a theme park, with an attraction, you say, here's the attraction, here's the building, the ride system fits inside, the THRC is 1,200, you know, you kind of know what that is, and then everybody sets about their business. Now, there's challenges and stuff, I'm not to, not to say that there isn't, but you don't have the operator coming back saying, you know what, we actually wanted two attractions, and we really wanted three retail shops, and, and could you go ahead and put five restrooms in instead of the two? And that's what Disney Springs was like all the way through the entire four years of, of that project. That's crazy. That's incredible. It's such hard work. Uh, I, I, a very dynamic project, to say the least. So that's that's just a fascinating project timeline right there. It's, in, it's amazing, really amazing there's not a, a balder man in front of you today. <laughs> <laughs> you manage the stress well. Um there are some pieces of Disney Springs, a lot of pieces that are Disney spaces. And one of them that I definitely want to talk about is Jock Lindsay's. Uh, I find that that is, uh, it's, it's a central piece in Disney Springs. I mean, it kind of is really in the center point of, of the full district, um, phys physically, geographically, maybe a little bit more towards um, like the Cirque du Soleil side, but it's, it's just such a fun place to go. I walk in there every time I go just to see it. And I find that from even in the, the rafters above the loft above seeing Mara and the tie back to Indiana Jones, uh, not original Lost Ark, um, but the Temple of the Forbidden Eye in Disneyland, um, the, the, you can spend an hour in there and not see everything. Um, did you have any impact on Jock Lindsay's or anything you could share about Jock Lindsay's? Cause it's such a fun place. Yes, that was, uh, we, we had the distinct pleasure as a, as a team, creative team specifically, uh, starting this, but the whole team to develop, of course. And we got to build, uh, five, 
brand new uh, brands for the Disney company. Uh, the Ganacherie is one of them, the chocolate shop, uh, so Amaret's, uh, Amaret's Patisserie, um, Deluxe Burger, um, Jock Lindsay's Hangar Bar. And then we did a, a couple of really developed carts, food carts, um, BB Wolf's and uh, Daily Poutine. So those were all brands, uh, everything, packaging, signage, uh, menu items, everything. But by far the coolest was was Jock's. I mean, it was so cool. And there's a really great story about how we got there, actually. So Jason Sorrell and I started uh, the the core uh, idea of this, and we were we were developing basically a jock character, um, but we didn't think that we could have permission to use it to use Indiana Jones, right? Because at the time we didn't own the the Lucasfilm, Lucasfilm uh, franchise right. it was purchased afterwards so we were kind of building this concept to build a character I think we called him Nick Rivers or something and it was sort of an adventure type character and as we were pitching this idea Tom Staggs was sitting and remember Tom was the chairman of Parks and Resorts right uh, during this development and and Tom just kind of grabs his chin and he goes well, why don't you make this Jock Lindsay's, uh, you know, based on the character? And 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 literally, Jason and I's mouth hit the floor because first, uh, first of all, uh, you know, his nerd credit went through the ceiling, right? To even know Jock, who was only on camera for maybe a minute, minute and a half, right? Very, very and, random character in the movie, <laughs> right? And we looked at each other and we said, "We can do that." And he goes, "Yeah, we can do that." So that's kind of how it started. And um, we just decided to put more Easter eggs than uh, than you'd find on Easter in that place. And uh, we had a really, really good time with the Lucasfilm people. Um, like I said, at the time, there were no plans for Indiana Jones franchise like there are now. And we were wanting to push the indie story uh, beyond what had been developed, what was in canon. And uh, so they were really amiable and really helped us to push a lot of that and to link Jock Lindsay specifically to a lot of real world adventurers, right? Sir Edmund Hillary um, and, and just, uh, you know, all kinds of male and female adventurers uh, from all over the world. And so that was a blast uh, to be able to do that. So cool. Um, yeah, it's. I, I, Tom Staggs definitely gets nerd credit for sure for for knowing that character. I and hope he's listening. That would be the coolest I, thing ever. <laughs> if he's listening, I'll be I'll be beside myself. He um <laughs> he uh, yes that that's amazing. Um, but I mean at that point I, I could see you almost building. Uh, you know it's funny. I almost feel like in the way that it was done, Jock Lindsay feels like a member of the Society of Adventurers and Explorers, Explorers and Adventurers, I should say, because. Um, it has such a, a like a Disney Sea tie to it, um, but I don't think it's formally part of that. If I we didn't formally yeah. make the link, uh, we chose instead to make the link with the Adventurers Club yes. to uh, tie in. And in fact, we had this really fun, almost a whole day uh, photo session where we brought back um, those performers from the Adventurers Club in their costumes and everything. We had a jock character, we had an indie character from the show, and we did this massive photo shoot so that all throughout um, jocks, you'll see photographs like the opening day, you know, the ribbon cutting, you'll have all of the uh, uh, characters there. So that was that was a blast being able to tie into all that lore. That's that's amazing. Um, I have to look for that photo. I have to. I, I'm sure I've seen it. At I don't think it connected when I saw that, but that that is actually very cool. Yeah. Um, there, there's a lot of details that are really really small, really tiny details. Like there's a dinosaur claw uh, that's in. I can't remember if it's in Lost and no no. It's uh, up by the bar, and that's a tie-in to Fred, who is actually is the actor who played Jock Lindsay in the film. Fred's actually a real pilot. And, oh wow! Uh, Fred, uh, I'm I'm drawing a blank on his last name, but Fred actually was hired by Steven Spielberg to be just a production pilot on Hawaii for the very first Jurassic Park. So if you remember in the film, there's a big hurricane coming. That was actually true. There was a real hurricane coming, and Spielberg pushed it as long as they could on the island to to shoot it to get all the great you know trees and rain and all that stuff. Well, Fred's the one that took the last flight 
of the production crew out of Hawaii during the filming of Jurassic Park. So we put a dinosaur claw in there to kind of as an homage to to Fred. That's so cool. Uh, I'll have to, I didn't see that. I'll have to look out for it. That's, uh, that's really, really cool. I love all those little details that are there. Man, we could talk talk a whole hour (laughs) just on jock. (laughs) I, I bet. Well, maybe, maybe that'll, maybe we'll tap in, um, and dive deep into Jacques Lindsay's in a future, a future live for sure. You know what Um, we should do, Matt? You should come to Orlando and we'll, we'll broadcast one live from Jacques Lindsay's. That idea I like. Have a, a drink in one hand, my phone in the other. We'll do in person uh, an Instagram live. That'll be cool. I will. We'll talk after because I will. I will be coming back actually pretty Sweet. soon. That would be really um, cool. That would be amazing. Uh, someone brought up uh, as I'm looking through questions here. One of my favorite things about Disney Springs, and I know you've gotten this before, the parking. And besides the parking, it's also the transportation. I remember when it was downtown Disney and I was a local and I was driving on a Friday night to downtown Disney, I would spend not kidding 45 minutes to get to to downtown Disney's parking lot, just sitting in bumper to bumper traffic. And then to find a parking spot required circling and being aggressive. I remember like having to actually like people would fight for spots and I'm not an aggressive person. So it's just about being strategic and making sure that I found the right person and had the right angle. So no one could fight me on it and I can get that spot. I distinctly remember that. And then as soon as I first went to Disney Springs by car and the simplicity of driving in from multiple places from any direction and then finding a parking spot it has never i wish every parking garage in america and across the world were like this because it it is just and i and i know it's it exists elsewhere but man can can you talk about the transportation and the parking because it's the part that is that always hassled me the most getting there and is now the easiest part of the experience well, I, I, I would start by saying that one of the very first things that we do at Imagineering, and, and really good designers do this, is you think of the guest first. And you, and you design and build um, the, the, the place that you're creating um, with uh, story, with uh, emotion, with heart, but also with function and as frictionless as possible. So before we ever put pencil to paper to start the design or the creative process for Disney Springs, we, there, were a lot, there was a lot of information that um, Walt Disney World had gathered from guests through lots of um, interviews and that kind of thing. And we took what we call verbatims. So it would be actual guest quotes. And those quotes became our design criteria. And one of those, actually, I, I can't say one because there were probably hundreds of uh, uh, verbatims that was related to parking. And, uh, and so we just collected all of that and called it the arrival sequence. And that, um, as a design criteria, became almost a whole separate project. Expanded the highway. We controlled, uh, we created an entire busing lane. So we went from uh, three lanes, Lake Buena Vista Drive, uh, and we went to five lanes. And we had a dedicated two-way bus traffic. We had a dedicated taxi lot. We had, you know, valet drop-off. And then we created these two giant garages, uh, which are about the size of aircraft carriers. And then we actually have um, an exit ramp that goes right off of uh, Interstate 4, which is our main corridor in Orlando. You go, you exit right into uh, Orange Garage. So that was so critical to our entire project because it's just what you said. Grumpy, frustrated, sweaty, you know, rained on people. They don't like to shop, you know. They And a lot <laughs> of people, right. especially the locals, I had locals tell me too, look, we just won't go. We'll go and, and go to the movie if we can get a parking space, but, but we're, we're not going to go. We're just not going to go. It's not worth it. So we knew that we had to change that, and we knew we had to make it better. Um, and not just better, but we wanted to set the standard. In fact, we got all of the pedestrian traffic, or I should maybe shouldn't say all. We got probably 95% of the pedestrian traffic um, off the street and into the garages and, and actually the big walkways, which we had to do for safety. We just didn't want guests crossing the road and... So we did a lot of that kind of infrastructure to make it easier for guests. And, um, 
And as you say, that's the compliment I get most for Disney Springs. Not Jock Lindsay, you know, not all the cool stuff that we did, but wow, I love the garages. <laughs> <laughs> it makes a big difference. It's the part that unless you knew the old downtown Disney and the experience there, you would just take it for granted. It's those little things that the frictionless points that you mention, when they're when they are frictionless, you almost don't even notice the effort and the thought process that goes into it. But when there is friction, you definitely notice it. Um, so seeing the, the the shift, having the appreciation of going from a lot of friction and not thinking about, well, they should do something different and maybe, you know, traditional thinking, just to add an extra lane each direction and make it easier. But no, like, let's totally reinvent how we're thinking about the whole arrival experience at this place and the infrastructure involved with that. Having the devoted bus lanes, like you mentioned, that's such a great critical point for the buses to easily get into and out of Disney Springs. Um, because I forgot even, even as a local, I, I forgot that you're right. Even as on, on the buses going from, let's say like, uh, you know, the, that animal kingdom lodge, I want to go to Disney Springs. It's still, I'm still sitting in 45 minute traffic, but on the bus. So it's, it's much better now. There was such complication around traffic because we had to do, and we brought in a, a company that that uh, excels. You know, that's what they do is traffic because you had, you had guest traffic in in rental cars, you had local traffic in their own cars, you had taxi traffic, you had Disney bus traffic, you had outside of Disney like mirrors or whatever uh, bus traffic or links is another city bus traffic. Then on top of all of that, you had deliveries. So all of those retail stores, all of the, the, the foods, everything required constant deliveries. You couldn't just say, don't deliver until five. So we had to weave all of that traffic in a, in a very, very strategic way to keep things flowing, to keep some of it behind the scenes that you don't see, and to keep it safe. And, and that alone was, I mean, there was, I, I don't want to talk too many numbers, but that was hundreds of millions of dollars just in in the um, arrival sequence. That's how important that was. The company literally spent hundreds of millions of dollars and the full four years of design and construction to to get all of that done. Unbelievable. That's incredible. Uh, it it there's there's a lot that goes into these projects. Like you said, it's a lot of money invested in the beginning, and it's you don't even know. I mean, you, you have some sense when you're building something like this that you're going to get it back, but it's uh, there's always the so much capital thrown in in the beginning um, with the expectation that you'll you'll get it back in the in the long run so much time spent on things like um, like screening the garages we knew that we didn't want to just do raw concrete structures there are other uh, amusement companies in the area that have done that and and none of us uh, and the company didn't really like that look so so we wanted to do something different and we thought of we it wasn't obviously those structures are new they weren't a part of the original um uh, village, you know, original town. And in fact, they, they blocked the view into Disney Springs from the road. So we had a big challenge in, in, in how to screen them. And we, what we came up with was sort of an urban art project uh, that you see in a lot of uh, downtown areas. And just a quick story on this, because this will actually illustrate to some of your viewers how, um, uh, from a design perspective, we have to be able to change very, very quickly. We did right. a concept on on how to screen the garages. It was a really cool kind of wavy metal pattern um, that started in the green colors, and then each ribbon band that was perforated got uh, bluer and grayer as it went up. So it would have reduced the visual size of the um, of the garage, and because they were kind of like wave ribbons, um, it broke up the linearity, the geometry of it. Um, so we pitched that. Our all of the bosses said, "Yep, great, go for it." So we got back. Uh, we told the contractor. The contractor buy, bought all the material and aluminum. Bought special machines to make the holes. They started working on it. All the engineering, right? So then, I don't know. The next month, I was in California. Did the update. Brought in the you know the more refined drawing and everything, and just had that on the board for the for all of my leaders, and just was just updating. Here's what's going. Well, they looked at me and they said, "Oh, we don't like that." what's that? And, you know, they're your leaders. So you don't go, well, dummy, you told me you know, the, to do this. They said, we don't like it. So quite literally, we had to redesign the entire 
screening on the garages. And those of you that have seen pictures or been here know it is detailed. We had, we changed that in 30 days and stayed with the engineering, with the existing contractor, and with all the machines that they specially bought to make the custom perfs. And and we were able to do that, get approval, and completely re-engineer it in just 30 days. So sometimes you're you're stuck in those situations. This is why we call you the geniuses at Imagineering, uh, because you have to adapt to these situations real fast and think critically about how to navigate it. It's not always an easy, easy sailing. It's usually not. Right. That's when you realize, uh, but that's when you realize that working 12 to 15 hour days is just a luxury, right? That there really are 24 (laughs) hours in a day. (laughs) So true. Um, Speaking of the garages, is one of the questions that came up here, which I think is very, um, it's specific, but it's interesting, is about the green parking garage um, or the green plants on the parking garage, I should say. Are they real or artificial? Oh, I'm so glad that you're asking. If you're asking, (laughs) that means it's not obvious. Um, we started with them as real because you, some of you may have heard me say this before. I, I was a real stickler on all the materials that we use at Disney Springs. I wanted real materials. So almost all the wood you see, stone, all that stuff, it's all real, real shells. We started that way. In fact, we had the engineering for sprinkler systems and everything. But the horticulturalists, uh, these are the experts with landscaping, they couldn't guarantee that the plants would stay alive. Uh, there were too many variables. They were in aluminum boxes. And they were concerned that the soil in the boxes would heat up in the in the sun. So we eventually decided to go with artificial, and we went with a really high end artificial that was you know color included and all that stuff. It's the same kind of stuff that uh, is at Pandora, and the same kind of um, uh, material that's on the Tree of Life. It's it's pretty high end stuff. That that makes a lot of sense, and that was my guess. It's difficult to manage real plants like that um, for that type of space, but yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I'm getting a ton of questions about the NBA experience because this is relevant news. I know that you probably, I know you were definitely not involved with the decision to to uh, get rid of the NBA experience, um, but uh, I guess. First of all, do you do you know anything about the decision to make it the NBA experience? And if you were to put your blue sky thinking cap on, how would you envision that space? Because it's a very big, I mean, it went from Disney Quest to, to NBA experience. I feel like there's a lot of potential use for that space. Yeah, it's pretty much a brand new building. I mean, uh, it was cheaper, which is crazy to me, but it was cheaper to demolish the building the Disney Quest building and rebuild it because we actually did quite a lot of studies of using the existing structure and modifying it. But when you do that kind of thing, there's a lot of uh, building codes that come into play with an older structure and it ends up costing you more money. So I find it very sad, actually, devastatingly so, to spend that kind of money on a facility and only after two years it's closed. Um, I haven't been with the company uh, since uh, last January or December, rather. So it obviously wasn't my decision. Right. And the project, <laughs> the, the project team that um, built that particular um, venue, I, I wasn't a part of. But I did pitch. My team and I did pitch in the beginning to the company an ESPN concept that would celebrate all sports. And, and we did give them the idea that you could have spaces within the, the facility where you could highlight whatever sport the season, uh, whatever uh, uh, sport that was highlighted in a particular season, whether it's Major League Baseball or basketball, football, or even things like Formula One or, or uh, you know, vol- uh, uh, beach volleyball. We really wanted it a place where it was all sports all the time. And for a whole bunch of corporate reasons that are too boring to go into, <laughs> um, and it had had a lot to do with probably with licensing uh, the right to broadcast NBA games, I think on ABC, um, and and that's kind of the way that they went. Which unfortunately, yeah. I, I I hated the idea, but that's the way that they went. It's it's very you're right. It's cor- it is corporate, and there's always it's just it's complex. I think is the is the reason for that, but. Um, I love the idea of, of if they can make it and maybe they will like expand it to an all sports all the time type of idea that would give it some diversity and you can go and have a different experience whenever you go different times of the year even locals it's it's like watching sports throughout the year you can always get a different experience that way so that would be that would be very cool. 
Well, just like uh, if you if you're a homeowner, uh, or actually if you own a vehicle, right? There's this idea of amateurization, right? So if you spent five hundred thousand dollars on your home, you know there's there's an amateurization of how long it takes to pay that off, or in the case of a business like like this, you know it takes years, decades for it to to um, go off the books, right? So I only say that to say there's no way that in two years it paid for itself. So the company will definitely be looking for another purpose for it. There is a restaurant attached to it, and I haven't heard if the restaurant's closed. I I can't imagine it would be because I believe it's ground floor, so that could be potentially run separate. That that could be. Um, But yeah, I I agree. And it's, um, you know, it's, we like to think that Disney always makes all the right decisions, but you only get to good decisions by sometimes making bad decisions too, or or having failures. And I mean, even even Walt, we go back to Walt himself. He had plenty of failures um, in addition to the many successes. But that's yeah, especially when you have a large project, it is it is taking a loss. Um, but the learnings will be there, which will be great. Which does transition me into a question I wanted to ask. Um, now that I'm thinking about it, and this came from here we go. What was the biggest lesson you learned when creating Disney Springs? Wow, biggest lesson I learned. I, I would have to say uh, there were a lot. So the one I'll lean into um, uh, creatively was I, I really personally felt like I had to reevaluate the way that I thought about designing and building a Disney experience. Now, keep in mind for, for your those who are viewing my personal career, I, I had already spent two years in Paris and four years in Hong Kong before Disney Springs. So that idea of, uh, of my baseline, if you will, of how to create stories and experiences for uh, different cultures and different people, that had already been challenged, right? And I'd already learned a lot about how to adapt stories to um, uh, different audiences so that those stories are relevant for those audiences. But Disney Springs was a different beast in itself because I, I, we couldn't, I mean, as a creative executive, I couldn't lean on any of the, of the elements that we use in a theme park, right? I couldn't use a hidden Mickey. I couldn't use concentric circles. I couldn't just use, you know, red, black, you know, and yellow. And then, you know, somebody go, oh, those are Mickey colors. Or, you know, I, I just, there, there was just, we couldn't use the characters. We, in fact, couldn't really use IP because we had so many tenants, and the entire process itself creatively was very different than, than a, uh, an attraction or a theme park. The approach that we took was very, very different. The place itself, the materials, the architectural designs, all of those things had to speak for themselves. Uh, we couldn't put a plaque there that said, you know, on this spot in 1905, you know, we just we didn't want to do that. We wanted right. the, 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 the place itself to exude the story. So that was probably my biggest uh, learning. And in fact, um, really is helpful now as I'm working for companies that are outside of themed entertainment, that kind of evaluation of applying stories and design to different brands. Uh, that was uh, very, very helpful for me. That that's a great takeaway. Um, yeah, there's always there's always something unique from different projects to to learn, and I think that's that's an interesting one for this one. Um, wrapping up, are there any other fun stories or details that you love pointing out to people if you take them to Disney Springs that they might not know about or take for face value or just like pass right by it and have have no idea that the big picture detail or the little detail that's involved. Sure. Uh, I'll do uh, three quick things. The first one is really really fun because we were talking about the hangar bar. Um, There was a great, I think it was called a great green heron, which is a bird. It's a protected bird, and it had a nest in a cypress tree on the site where Jock Lindsay's was going to go. We couldn't remove the tree because the animal was protected, so that delayed our project. I believe it was two months, maybe longer uh, the, from when we were supposed to start because we were waiting for the, the baby heron to hatch and for them to fly away <laughs> before we could cut down the tree. So that's that was really cool. Um, the other thing is uh, I get asked, uh, I have been asked quite a lot before about hidden Mickeys. I mentioned it just a few minutes ago. Yeah. And I'm probably one of the only 
Imagineers that I've heard from that really vehemently disagrees with using hidden Mickeys. I really am passionate about not using them. I like hidden Easter eggs. I really love hidden story points because I feel like if guests um, discover something, a detail that they hadn't seen before, that detail should further the story of the venue that they're in not tell a corporate story about the company that runs the venue that they're in. So that's kind of the, the difference that I see it. So the next time that you're at Disney Springs, when you're especially in the landing neighborhood, now that's the old Pleasure Island where right. most of the restaurants are, look up on the buildings because we have uh, what we call terracotta sculpts, uh, bas-relief sculpts, and those sculpts actually tell the story of the function of that island before it got turned into Disney Springs. Um, also, in front of Jock Lindsay's, there's a big brass compass rose uh, inset in uh, the, the brick pavers, and the north, south, east, west also has um, a vehicular representation of the four modes of travel that were all represented by the landing. So that's really cool. Last detail about the landing that very few people know about is all of the bricks that were that you'll see in the paving, uh, what you walk in. Uh, Imagineering, our project team purchased all of those bricks from a college, a university in downtown Orlando called Rollins College. It's very well known uh, for their law degree and, and business degree. Um, and it's in an old part, uh, historic district. And when they expanded at the time that we were building Disney Springs, they actually uh, removed some of the old brick streets to do their expansion. And they were had enough forethought to save the bricks and we bought all of them. We bought all the wow. pallets of bricks. Now, here's the really cool thing. Those, the company or the factory that made those bricks went out of business in 1927. So Whoa. they were built <laughs> prior to 1927 and laid in the ground prior to that. So it was perfect timing for the history of the landing, which was founded and built in 1901. So all of those street bricks... Who, that were manufactured for that purpose are now used in the landing as street bricks in the same time period. So again, very few people know that, but uh, I just think that's the level of details in our storytelling that we went to. That is authenticity. That is incredible. I can't even imagine thinking about that. Let's try to get bricks from the actual era about a hundred years ago and the factory that would have made it. I mean, that is almost inconceivable for most companies to wrap their heads around, but that is such an authentic detail. That's really, that's thinking about with, that's honestly like even comparing it to such an authentic detail as Joe Rody saying, let's buy out shops in Nepal and put them in the Expedition Everest queue. I mean, that's really, that's like taking it out to a time period that you can't even, that doesn't even almost, you know, doesn't, ex you can't get that type of uh, material anymore. So that's, that's amazing. I will be thinking about that every time I pass over those bricks now. Um, amazing. Well, uh, Theron, I, I mean, I feel like for sure, next time I get to down, down to Disney Springs, we'll have to do an Instagram live together, maybe show off some of that. If we do Jocks Lindsay's, I am all for that, but we'll also have to share some of the uh some of the details and walk through do like a walk through disney springs and, and check some things out but i want to make sure people know where to go to find you because not only are you so such an expert on what has been done in the past with disney and what you've worked on but you also help companies you help individuals people who are looking to get into a creative role so where could people to go to connect with you and and absorb all this knowledge and apply it for themselves Great. Well, I, as I've mentioned before on previous uh, Instagram lives that we've had together, I really enjoy inspiring, educating, and guiding the next generation of theme experience designers. So on my uh, Instagram page, you can find a link tree link that connects to all of the different platforms where I share content, YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Facebook. I have a, a pretty large Facebook room uh, group or Facebook group that we do a, a live room every other month. Um, website, I have courses, and then I'll f I also offer, which 
this is kind of unique in the industry, but I offer a coaching service uh, to people as well. You can access that through my website, The Designers Creative Studio is the name of my company. And I've helped students, I've helped professionals, you know, peers and uh, C-suite executives um, talk about ways to revolutionize their businesses to include story. Um, I've talked to students about how to position their careers, their academic careers and their early careers to find entry points into the industry. And I've helped existing pros that are in the industry now, but maybe they want to move. Maybe they're a concept designer and they want to move into art direction, that kind of thing. And I really enjoy doing that. So that's just some of the ways um, that, that I'm out there, but I, I have a lot of different social sites and uh, people can find me in those locations. Uh, the designerscreativestudio.com is, uh, is my website and the link tree is on the Instagram, my Instagram page, probably the, the two best ways. Easy enough. So if you're listening to the podcast, it's going to be in the description of this episode. Just find the links there. If you're watching on Instagram now, uh, after this is over, it's going to go up on IGTV and maybe that's where you're watching it here. And I'll have Theron's Instagram handle there. So just click on that, go there and you'll find all the links to all those places. So um, Theron, this is always a pleasure. Again, I always learn something new from talking with you. And I feel like once again, half the things that you mentioned, I did not know. And the other half, I only know because we've talked about it before. So <laughs> I appreciate it. This has been so much fun. Um, thanks, everyone, for watching as well. And um, yeah, Theron, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for, for being back on Instagram Live. My pleasure. One of the coolest ideas out of this is that we're actually going to go to Jock Lindsay's, have a drink and do live. That's, I, that's I'm looking forward to that so much. That's game changing. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me. Thanks, and everyone. uh, everybody have a great week. Thanks. Same to you. Bye, everyone. with that, we close out episode 119 of the Imagineer podcast. I want to give a very special thank you once again to Theron for coming on to the show once again to talk about incredible Imagineering details. I loved this conversation about Disney Springs. I know I will be visiting Disney Springs again and looking for all these incredible details that went into the inspiration and the execution of this shopping district at Walt Disney World. I, of course, want to turn this conversation over to you and hear what detail or story you enjoyed the most from this conversation. You can send me your answers and feedback in so many different ways. I would encourage you to follow Imagineer Podcast on social media. You can find Imagineer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and LinkedIn at Imagineer Podcast on Twitter at Imagineer News. And you can join our Facebook group, which is the Imagination, also called the Imagineer Podcast Disney Fan Community, to chat about this subject and all things Disney with me and with other members of this listener community. You can also send me an email if you want to send any direct feedback. If not through a direct message on social media, you can email me at matt at imagineerpodcast.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, make sure to hit that subscribe or follow button, whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeartMedia, Stitcher, Podbean, or any other podcast app, which will ensure that you are the first to know when new podcast episodes become available. And usually the episodes, depending on your settings, will even download straight to your phone so you can listen as soon as the episode becomes available. And if you have a few moments to leave us a rating and a review in the Apple Podcast Store in particular, that goes a long way to help this community out. It lets others know what they can expect if they come across Imagineer Podcast in a search or find it on social media. And I do read each and every review that I get. I'll often share them out on my Facebook or Instagram stories. And I'm so grateful to those of you who have left a rating and a review in the past. But perhaps the best thing you could do for the show is a very simple thing. 
and that's to hit that share button. Whether you share out this podcast episode or the podcast as a whole or any other podcast episode or even a post on social media, that goes a long way to help this community out and helps us to get even more optimists and family-friendly Disney fans into our community. You can also simply, of course, just talk about Imagineer Podcast with your family and friends who love all things Disney, and it goes a long way again to help this community out. And if you would like to take your love of Imagineer Podcast to the next level, I would encourage you to check out our Patreon group over at patreon.com slash Imagineer Podcast. I have a link to that destination in the show notes of this episode and at imagineerpodcast.com. But that's a way you can help to support the show financially and at all levels of support. You get benefits, perks, and rewards that are available exclusively to our what we call Imagination Passholder community or Patreon members. And those include things like access to a private Facebook group. We do weekly Disney Plus watch parties as well as private virtual events just for members of this community. Early access to every podcast episode, bonus podcast episodes, daily content that's posted to our Patreon group, and so much more. You can see what perks and rewards are currently available because they are subject to change by, again, heading to patreon.com slash podcast. And thanks, as always, to our incredible Patreon community. I would also encourage you to check out our partners. First, take a look at The Kingdom Insider over at thekingdominsider.com and The Kingdom Insider on all social media channels to get the latest news about what's happening at the Disney parks and resorts. They have a really great way of sharing the latest Disney news because they confirm the Disney news, which I appreciate, by either looking for official announcements that come directly from Disney or by reaching out to Disney representatives to confirm what information is true, which helps to sift through all the information that's online about Disney these days. So you can check them out again by heading to thekingdominsider.com or simply follow The Kingdom Insider on your favorite social media channel. And the next time you're ready to book a vacation to Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Disney Cruise Line, Adventures by Disney, Alani, or any other Disney destination, check out our travel partner, Academy Travel. They are a diamond earmarked agency, which is the highest level of distinction that Disney awards travel agencies. They've been in this business for over 25 years and can offer an incredible amount of service in helping to plan out your next Disney vacation, which is great because not only do they have the experience and the service to make the most or help you to make the most of your next Disney vacation, but it comes at no additional cost to you, which is such a great benefit. You can learn more and request a free quote for your next Disney vacation by clicking on the links in the show notes below or by heading to imagineerpodcast.com, clicking on the travel dropdown and selecting your destination. Last but not least, I want to encourage you as always to go after your hopes, your dreams, your goals, whatever they might be. I'll also add that having a positive mindset and an optimistic point of view really goes a long way, not just in helping you to accomplish your dreams, but in making a better life for yourself. It goes a long way because the right attitude really makes the difference, all the difference in your in your life and can really help you to bring your dreams to reality. So Remember to stay optimistic, stay positive, and remember as always that inspiring quote from Horizons, if you can dream it, you can do it. Thank you so much for listening to the show, and we'll see you again in a future episode of the Imagineer Podcast. Everybody, here we go! Yeah.